1: continuing our study of the book of Leviticus and we're now studying the section that is dealing with the conduct of the priests. Last week we uh, looked at the consecration of Aaron and his sons and we've seen what um, Moses had to do to perform this consecration and then today we're going to look at one event that follows right after that consecration. And that event deals with two of the sons of Aaron. Uh, clearly, it is not necessarily the case that these events follow each other temporally, but they're juxtaposed one after the other to serve as a warning, as an admonition, and to remind us also of the importance of our reliance on God. So that is in chapter 10 of the book of Leviticus. And so far, we've been pretty much following the book linearly, but after we finish the section on uh, the priesthood, it will not necessarily be a linear process because I grouped the remaining chapters into two sections one that really still deals, if you will, with the conducts of the Levites in general, and one that deals with the lady because it is something that is probably easier for us to understand, since, anyways, we're not doing a verse by verse study of the entire book. And, and we can then, uh, th- that hopefully will help us better remember and retain the structure of the book, which is introduction to the whole sacrificial order, how and what should we we be sacrificing, then the introduction of the priests, their consecration, and the role they must play, and the role in society, and after that, how the lay folks must behave. So you can see, essentially, the book of Leviticus isn't just a set of instruction for the priests. It's really... Uh, pretty much a full set of laws or directions given by God about how the entire community should live. And it is pretty, it is really close to um, the encyclicals. So you can almost think uh, of the structure of the book of Leviticus the way you might think of an encyclical. If you have not read an encyclical, I do uh, recommend you do so. Um, for instance, um, you may want to pick up one of the encyclicals of Pope Benedict XVI. Um, they're fa- they're fairly they're usually short, and he writes with a great clarity. So the one on love, for instance, is uh, highly recommended. Um, you can also pick up um, uh, the encyclical uh, <clears throat> an encyclical by uh, John Paul II on. the Uh, life of the family, or the structure of the church, any of those, you will see there is also a structure that follows something similar to what you see here, which is very interesting. Anyways, in chapter 10, following the ordination of Aaron and his sons, and the appearance of God's presence at the newly consecrated tabernacle, we see in this chapter various regulations regarding appropriate priestly conduct, and then to emphasize that necessity, the chapter briefly recalls the death of the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who had made an improper incense offering. So what scripture says is that these two priests had presented an incense offering without using, by using a foreign fire, a strange fire, fire that is not from the altar. And because of that, God smote them. They died inside the tent. So, uh, we're going to talk about that today and try to understand it. This uh, recalls, for instance, the story of Korah in Numbers. Now, we've done, those of you who were with us when we did the study of the book of Numbers, you remember Korah was the one who rebelled against Moses. And um, after the test that Moses imparts, um, literally the earth opened out and swallowed Korah and his family alive. God can be dramatic sometimes. So, this is sort of similar, um, because the tragedy of the punishment and is actually echoed in several other uh, Torah passages, passages of the um, uh, scriptures that deal with the law. The chapter itself can be divided into four sections. The death of Nadab and Abihu, and its aftermath, verses 1-7. through seven. The regulation prohibiting priests from imbibing intoxicants. Drinking prior to officiating in a cult, eight to eleven, and that's why it caused many commentators to think that uh, Nadab and Abi who must have been drunk when they offered that sacrifice. So uh, we'll, we'll get back to that in, in a moment. A restatement of the requirement that priests eat their allotted portions from the sacrifices within specified areas, twelve to fifteen. And then Moses' instruction to Aaron, Aaron and his remaining sons regarding the disposition of the sin offering that had been brought by the people as part of the dedication of the tabernacle. And there's a reference to the sacrifice mentioned. This is, this is the, the end of the chapter, 16 through 20. And uh, we'll get to that because it is, uh, on the subjective side, the demand put on, Mo, on on Aaron are are fairly large. And, I mean, very uh, fairly great. And they might shock us. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at in this chapter hopefully today and we're going to close with some uh, comments more on the moral reading of scripture by the end of uh, the uh, the study so let's begin by reading verses one through seven now nadab and abihu the sons of aaron each took his censer and put fire in it that um is really this fire, the word used here refers to the embers placed on the fire. Uh, you've seen, uh, obviously, censors. Uh, we do the same thing uh, in our churches today. And laid incense on it and offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And um, the Hebrews word used here indicates it's an alien fire, so alien to the temple. That's why unholy is a good translation. It's essentially they brought something which was not part of the temple into the temple and used that. So, in our terminology today, we may use unconsecrated. Right? Same idea. Unholy doesn't necessarily mean that... I mean, you can't necessarily infer by that that they were actually performing an act of magic. Although, it may be possible. Because one of the constant temptations for the Israelites in the desert was to return back to cultic behaviors they have seen or have learned or participated in while they were in Egypt. So that is a possibility, but it's not clear. And it is not even needed. The point isn't that what they were doing was magical in nature. The point is that they brought inside the temple inside the holy, something that was not consecrated, was not made holy to the Lord. Right? That is the problem. That is the problem that they, had, they were facing. And the text is not specifying that offense, as I said. All it is saying is that they brought unholy fire, And then fire, God answers by fire, and fire came forth from the presence of the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So fire devouring somebody means that they burned. That's what happened. So this refers to the fire mentioned in 924, which came forth from inside the tent of meeting and consumed the sacrifices offered at the dedication of the temple. And... um, the same phraseology, the same way of expressing the text is found in Numbers 16.35, where we see that God's fire consumed Koran and his faction as they stood near the tent of the meeting. So yeah, Koran and his faction was consumed by fire, sorry. Uh, there was another instance where people were swallowed by the earth. I mean, it's not that. Um, to offer incense that had been rejected by God, and so there is a similarity here between the two, the two um, situations. So, um, potentially, one can see in the behavior of the priests um, a form of rebellion. So, either a negligence on their parts, they didn't think much of it, and it just brought fire from some other place, or outright rebellion by them deciding to do what they wanted to do and not following the instructions that were given by God. Now, um, again, we're going to spend a little bit of time on that, talking about why is it, why is it th- um, that the answer, God's answer, seems to be, at least in our ears, out of proportion with what these priests did. They came in to use the incense, so they fired the incense, I mean, they, they, you, obviously you put fire and then you put the incense on, that fire did not come from the presence of the Lord, but after all there was incense. And after all, these men did not, I mean, they did not commit a, an immoral act in the presence of God. They did not commit something we would consider to be a heinous crime of any shape or sort. They just used a fire that was not from the altar. And God then destroys them by fire. Now, To us, it sounds completely disproportionate, doesn't it? Yeah. I want you to keep that in mind. That is so important to keep that disproportion between what they did and God's answer. Because one of the greatest danger, one of the gravest danger we can run is to bring God down to our level and conform God's justice to our sense of justice. Hmm? whenever we do that, whenever we think we know God's justice, we are in grave danger. Because sin, by its very na- nature, right, is lenient to sin. Sin loves company. Yeah? Therefore, to justify our own sinful behavior we are ready and willing to justify the sinful behavior in general. That doesn't mean necessarily that we are not going to condemn our brother for doing the same thing. We could, but generally speaking, we are going to make it easier on us. And the general trend runs this way. I'm a a good person, didn't kill anybody, didn't steal, didn't cheat on my taxes, Go to church. I'm a good person. Therefore, I should go to heaven. God should be good to me. I'm good. He should be good to me. You see what I'm saying? Once we start thinking this way, we're no longer worshipping the true God. Right? We're worshipping a God made in our own image. Hmm? So, this is a very important lesson for us, and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But first, I want to... Note that whenever we see strangeness in the Scripture, when we see stranger strangeness in the Scripture, like something happening which we find strange, we are, the, the, the good, there, there are two reflexes. One is bad, one is good. The bad reflex is to say, whoa, God is strange. Hmm? That's bad. The good reflex is to say, that indicates that I am estranged from God. That reminds me that I'm exiled. That I'm away from home, and I don't understand my native tongue anymore. Anytime Scripture shocks you, anytime Scripture is seems strange, you should immediately reflect on yourself. You're seeing you're seeing your own reflection. Hmm? There's nothing more natural than God, right, God is the most natural, meaning, um, if you will, expected, consistent, logical, beautiful, living being, there is, the strange ones are us, we are the strange ones, in fact, we, we tend to be strangers to each other. We may have a hard time even understanding our brother or our sister or feeling compassionate towards them. So the strangeness the strangers is on us, not in Scripture. But we need to understand, we are converted and convicted by our reason. Our reason must understand why this is so, and we're going to get to that in a minute. So, according to the rabbis, the first offense of the two priests, laying using incense brought from outside the sacred area, or fire brought from the outside of the sacred area, as we said, The other one is that the the offense consisted of penetrating too far into the sanctuary. And it's supported by the reference to this episode in chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. There, Aaron is warned not to repeat the offense of his two sons by proceeding beyond the curtain in the sanctuary on any occasion other than Yom Kippur, lest he dies. So in 16, it would seem as if chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus is telling Aaron, do not do what your sons did. Do not go too far into the sanctuary, lest you die. And you, you, you have to see that in the commentary of the rabbis, they really strain, they really strain to absolve Nadab and Abihu, right? Now, option two is a stretch because scripture is very clear. They were condemned because they brought a strange fire, an unholy fire. It's black and white. In chapter 6, verse 9 and 12, God commanded that the victims should be burnt with the perpetual fire on the altar. And these two priests, possibly, maybe acted rashly because they did not receive the proper instruction. That is possible. They did things according to their own understanding, according to their own Choices of what that um, sacrif- sacrificial um, sacrificial um, act should look like possible. Now there is a, um, a, a priest of the Society of Jesus. His name is Jacobus tyranus who wrote a commentary of Scripture in 1645, and in that com- co- commentary this priest points out that the sin committed by Nadab and Abihu was venial in itself. In his estimation, the sin that they committed was venial. And then he says that um, that, uh, this was done so that all might learn to comply exactly with God's commands and not dare to explain them away. Venial sin. Now, the good thing about it being a venial sin is, if, if it were indeed a venial sin, is that obviously the, 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 the pain they suffered in their death would have essentially acted as a payment for that sin. Right? Because if this were a mortal sin, that fire would be a prelude to the unextinguishable fire of hell. Because it's one thing to think about how they died. After all, we all die. But it's more important to understand the meaning of their death. Right? We all die. And it's, it's interesting that when we speak of our lives, we talk about somebody living a, a healthy life. Right? And by this we mean that this person is taking care of themselves, they're exercising, they're eating the right thing, they're doing what is important to maintain their body, and that's a good thing. But Absent from our language is expressions such as, oh, this person, this person had a healthy death. Death is considered by us uniformly unhealthy. You notice? Right? But that is fundamentally a culture that has lost the meaning of life. Because just as there is a healthy life and an unhealthy life, there is such a thing as a healthy death. And an unhealthy death. Right? Because healthy death m- leads to what? By definition. To health, right? Yeah. You see where I'm going with that? See where I'm going with it? Yeah. A healthy death leads to health. Right? And life in heaven is the ultimate health you can ever have. And an unhealthy death leads to hell. But we don't think of our life as a preparation for death, or we should. Are you preparing for a healthy death or are you preparing for an unhealthy death? That's the question. And then some of the signs of where you're going with that is simple. Are you afraid of dying? Now, think about somebody who is not living a healthy life. That person, that person doesn't want to look at themselves in the mirror and say, "Well, you know, maybe I should be exercising. Maybe I should drink less. Maybe I should do this." Right? They kind of hide away. They're afraid of living, in a sense. Well, the same thing. If you're afraid of dying, then you need to really think about why. Why am I afraid of dying? Conversely, if you're not looking forward to dying, you need to ask yourself why? Why aren't you looking forward to dying? It sounds strange, doesn't it? It's really countercultural. It's counter- but, but Jesus looked forward to the cross. He did. Right? Why? Because it was the door. The door to the resurrection. In our Christian language, death is called what? The anti which means the chamber before. Antichamber means the chamber before. The wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the room that you wait in before you are ushered into the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is death for a Christian. And that's what St. Paul says. Oh, death, where is your sting? If you're afraid of dying, you've got to realize, you have to realize and understand the nature of the battle you're engaged in. Fear of death comes from the devil. That's number one. He wants you to fear death. And two, from self-love. You know, it disordered self-love. Now we, we disguise this in multiple ways. We, we say, well, "I'm afraid of dying because I want to take care of my family. I'm afraid of dying when I take care of my kids. I'm afraid of dying because I want to leave people I love alone." All that are excuses. Mm-hmm. Truth of the matter is, we, we have some clean. We have a cleanup to do if we're afraid of dying. That, that that is so important for us to understand. There is such thing as a healthy death, just as there's such thing as a healthy life. So. St. Augustine points out that those in power, like priests, if they be negligent, shall suffer great torments. If they be negligent. I want you to key in on that word. Negligence. For those of you who do go to confession, I just want you to reflect tonight. When was the last time you confessed being negligent? In your prayer life, in your duties, in showing love to others, in going the extra mile. When was the last time you can? All you need to do to lose heaven is be negligent. That's it. It's enough. Because what is negli- what is the source of negligence? Laziness. Not laziness. No. Sloth sloth and laziness are connected. Negligence leads to laziness. You see? The source of laziness is something worse than sloth. You're getting closer. Carelessness. Neglect. Neglect? Not rebellion, no. Ah, indifference. What is the word Christ uses Lukewarm. in the book of... Yeah. Lukewarmness. Lukewarm. The lukewarm, I spit them out. That's the words he used. Negligence has its source in lukewarmness. That's why you need to be careful, examine yourself. Am I being negligent? Okay? Uh, How do you know that? Very, very easy. Uh, You remember, those of you who are married now, go back to the time where you met your spouse the first time. Let me talk to the men for a second. When you met the the woman that you wanted to marry, did you ever wake up during that time one morning thinking, ah, I'll let her wait two hours, not a problem. I'll show up late. It's okay, I have a football match to watch. She can wait. Did you do that? If tomorrow I were to tell you next Sunday you go to Mass, there's a pile of $10 million sitting at the foot of the altar. First come, first serve. Would you show up late? Why? You see that? You will not neglect going to Mass early. Yeah. Negligence has its root in lukewarmness. So, St. Augustine, only by being negligent you shall suffer great torments. And um, he based himself on Scripture From the book of wisdom. Listen therefore, O kings, and understand. Learn, O judges of the ends of the earth. Give ear, you that rule over multitudes and boast of many nations. For your dominion was given you from the Lord, and your sovereignty from the Most High, who will search out your works and inquire into your plans. Because as servants of his kingdom you did not rule rightly, nor keep the law. "...nor walk according to the purpose of God, he will come upon you terribly and swiftly, because severe judgments falls on those in high places. For the lowliest man may be pardoned and mercy, but mighty men will be mightily tested. For the Lord of all will not stand in awe of anyone, nor show deference to greatness, because he himself made both small and great, and he takes thought for all alike." But a strict inquiry is in store for the mighty. To you then, O monarchs, my words are directed that you may learn wisdom and not transgress. For they will be made holy who observe holy things in holiness. And those who have been taught them will find a defense. So, because of this, some commentators will infer that the offense made by Nadab and Abi, who was actually mortal, and their punishment a prelude of eternal torments, while others piously hope that their sin was only venial and that it was expiated by their repentance and violent death, in which sense uh, Philo, the uh, um, Jewish commentator, explains they died before the Lord, hence they were buried honorably. He sees their death before the Lord as a sign of, um, and then the fact that they were buried honorably, as a sign of um, um, essentially forgiveness. Now before we get into this business of venial versus mortal, let me ask this question. Why? Why did God kill them? Let's see if you've been following the whole purpose of the book of Leviticus. Why did God kill them? Pardon? They did not obey. obey. Yes. But something else at work here that's really important. Yes. Maybe. But there's something else at play here. That is, is the entire structure of the book of Leviticus. Everything we've been studying so far. Right. What is the purpose of those sacrifices? That's it. The first purpose of those sacrifices was to be present to be in the presence of God and not die. Remember? Very first offering you make, the olah, the holocaust, the whole burnt offering, whole burnt is that so that your presence may be acceptable before God. That's it. Remember that? What happened here? their presence. So therefore, the sacrifice could not stand for them. Therefore, what happened to them? They became the whole burnt offering. You see that? God is consistent. And He doesn't lie. So we know, therefore, that their their offering was not acceptable before God out of negligence. And as a result, they became the whole burnt offering. Okay. So let's reflect on that and try to understand it in our own context. Where do you think, if I were to transpose what we're reading right now about Nadab and Abihu, to our modern time, what do you think the setting would be? Would it be a supermarket? The church. The church. You see that? They're priests. Hmm? In their case, they did not follow the instructions given by God when offering a sacrifice. Let's transpose that over to our case. What would be the equivalent if these were Catholic priests? What would be the equivalent thing in your mind? What do you think that would be Today? To receive communion unworthily, it doesn't, yeah, I mean, you're right, but it doesn't match exactly what they were doing. What were they doing? There are priests. And what were they doing? Offering sacrifice. So, what do you call that, offering sacrifice? Liturgy. The liturgy. They're not following the liturgy. Mm-hmm. They're just not following the liturgy. That's all. Let's just think about that for a second. Let's just think about that for a second. First, let's understand what that means. We're not... These priests, in our modern language, right, doing straight transposition, right? I'm not trying to extract second or third meaning here. We'll go to the moral sense later. But right now, if we were to say that they were not Jewish priests, but Catholic priests, right, what would be the equivalent thing... Today, well, they were in the middle of offering a sacrifice and they were using a censor. Where do you use censers? Where do we use censers? And w- in the church and when in the church? During? During, during, mass. during mass. During mass, right? So that would be Catholic, a Catholic priest celebrating mass. You're with me so far? Yes. Okay. And in this case, they used a fire that did not come from the altar. The fire that was lit by God. Okay? So, in our case, it could be anything else that a priest is not supposed to do according to the rubric of the liturgy. Yeah? That's it. That's all they did. So now let's put some color to this. Let's assume this priest is a a good priest. We think of this priest as a good priest. He's kind and loving and cares about people and visits the sick and does all these things. But he just doesn't follow the liturgy. Just think about that for for a second. Exhibit A, you have a priest who follows the liturgy all the way through. Exhibit B... But but this priest is kind of a little bit stuck up. And when he talks to you, he's kind of dry. And most women are afraid of him. They don't want to go to him in confession because he's just, uh, you know. doesn't have that personal touch, let's just say. Yeah? There's this other priest who's really nice and very easy to talk to. And he listens and he cares and he understands. But he just doesn't follow the liturgy completely. According to your own estimation, in your heart of hearts, which of these two priests is better? The second, right? To many of us, it would be the second. Right? It would be the second. He's easygoing. You invite him over. He comes. He's he's a nice company. He cares for your kids. He gives them toys. The other one is kind of stuck up. He comes in and it's more a little bit, um, you know, kind of a... Military man here. Right? Captain America type style, right? I mean, okay. Right? We would root maybe for the second. Good. But you understand from a human perspective. Yeah? You see that? Okay. Why, would we, why should we root for the first? Why should we root for the first? He follows the liturgy, okay, so then what? I can find, I can find, I mean, I can find a marine, right? I can find a G.I. Joe, I can find men in the military who follow instructions to the T. His prayers are valid. Well, in the case of the other priest, the Mass, let's say, is not illicit. Still valid. He says the words of consecration, still valid. Okay, you went to a valid Mass with him. Yes. Okay, you're getting closer. Discipline and obedience. It's important. He's dictator. He says, you're bringing another good point. Is he a dictator? Very good point. Discipline and obedience. Dictatorship. Very good. Because I think both of you are hinting on something that is very important, though. Very important. That's important. He must lead us to do the right thing. You agree, right? But there's still this dictatorship aspect. We need to deal with that. But, but he's leading us, you know, we are the sheep, he's the shepherd, and he's leading us, yes, all right, very good, truth is important, I agree, what we should, okay, truth, discipline, obedience, yes, I'm with you, but I think a piece of the puzzle is still missing, but we're getting closer, yes, both of them are offering truth. Yes, but the second one is not doing it the same. We're saying he's not doing exactly what the liturgy requires of him. Either it's holding hands, or maybe he's skipping apart, or he's deciding to do something different, or for instance, or maybe allowing young, young kids to come up to the altar, or whatever, right? Okay. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Okay, what do you mean by that? Fear of the Lord. Okay, fear of the Lord. That's important. Yes. Okay, so there is some of that which is maybe one is doing it because there's a fear of the Lord and he doesn't want to according to his own thinking. The other one may be influenced by the trend or want to please people. There is that. But bear, bear with me. But I want to bring you back to the essentials of the question. Suppose somebody comes to visit you and they walk into your house right? and they don't sweep their feet. Sweep their shoes. I mean, you know, clean, wipe, sweep, wipe. You get the drift of it. right? Wipe, sweep, clean their shoes. Okay. Would you consider that to be a terrible offense? Is it terrible? No. Would you take a flamethrower and burn them? <laughs> My point. I'm using a graphic image because it's similar to what happened here. Okay, so, well, okay, maybe you're, yes, maybe because they just dirtied something that is very expensive. But still, would you kill them? You're thinking about it. All right, good. Why am I asking this question? Because the example I gave you on purpose is that this priest, let's say, omitted one part of the liturgy. Right? On a scale from 1 to 10, from our perception, how big of a deal is that? How much is it? But let's take what you just said right now that if you are lax on this bit, you can be lax on everything else and everything will fall apart. Still, did he have to burn them? Couldn't he have told Moses, Moses, what those guys did, you know, you, you got to train those guys. This is not appropriate. Now, we would consider that to be an acceptable answer, would we? Right? I mean, he would have told them, and come on, take care of them and then teach them the stuff the way you should, right? Let me give you an example, bear with me. You have altar boys. They show up in sneakers. Yeah. They step up on the altar in sneakers. Do you take a flamethrower and burn them? No. What you would consider They're to be kind people. of somewhat disproportionate, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One possibility, those young men didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. All right. That's what we said. Okay, so. Here's the deal. This is why it's such a big deal, and this is what we have a problem with. Let me put it to you in this term to kind of unify what you said earlier because of the dictatorship, which I agree completely with. Following form and only form is what the Pharisees did. Following form and only form, or following form for form's sake, is that dictatorship and that tyranny. We're not to follow form for form's sake. We're follow following form for God's sake. But let's put it in terms we can understand, because that's our the difficulty for us. It's really right there the struggle. Suppose you're going to meet this young woman, and you want to propose to her. And she told you, she told you, that. She likes roses. It's her favorite flower. And you show up with lilies. Just think about that for a second. Just think about that. You showed up with lilies. Now, is there something intrinsically wrong with lilies? They're beautiful flowers, aren't they? What did you just do? Well, yeah, yeah, agree. You prepared yourself for death, yes. But, but beyond that, What did you just do? What are you telling her when you gave her lilies? Or, I'm not listening. Right? Or, you're not as important to me as I'm saying you are. Okay, so. Replace now that woman with God. Think about the offense. Now, how do we measure the offense? Let me give you two examples. You just stole $1 one buck is that a big offense thank you it depends it depends from whom you stole the dollar because the extent of the act isn't measured by the subject it is measured by the object let me explain I stole a dollar from Bill Gates. How much harm have I brought to Bill Gates? Negligible, right? It's still an offense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing myself. But the severity of it is minimal. I brought no perceivable or measurable offense to Bill Gates. Yeah? Versus, I stole a dollar from a six-year-old girl. Who had spent a year saving pennies. How big is that offense? It's huge. Therefore the offense is not measured. Against the subject. It is measured against the object. You're with me? Okay bear with me. Bear with me. God gave us instructions. On how we are supposed to worship him. We come before God. And we tell God. I'm just going to skip this part. I decided I know better how to worship you. I'm just going to skip that part. I'm going to change this. Now, never mind, never mind for a second, never mind for a second the actual offense to God. Think rather about the expression of love. Think about that for a second. You go to church, why do you go to church? You go to church because you hate God? You go to church and you're saying to God what? I love you. 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 But you know what, God? You asked for roses, I brought you lilies. Mm -hmm. What do you think the proper label would be on that kind of behavior? It's a word that Jesus used. Start with the letter H. That's it. No, no, no. Don't don't, don't laugh. This is a very good point. No, 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 no. I am not taking this to be facetious. This is an important point you're making. That's fine. Because God expects that. But when God tells you in the liturgy, this is what I want you to do. Because this is what my church asks you to do. My bride, the one I died for. And you come into the church. And you bring your own liturgy. Oh, well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Well, the intent, but, but the action too. That's what I'm talking about. Because remember our scenario here is. Nedab and Abihu. Two priests. Decided to use their own. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you now understand why. Despite the fact that I might like. That other priest on a human level. I might appreciate his qualities. Which he has. And I acknowledge that he has good human qualities. He knows how to talk to people. He's attentive towards the children. I see all that. But he is provoking God's wrath. And he's leading us astray. Do you see that? Do you see that? Okay. Okay. Think about it. And then if you have questions, ask me. Okay. But that's what God said. You see, in the book of Leviticus, God told them specifically what he wanted. Why did he do that? Remember, this is the question I keep on asking. Why is God concerned with what you're supposed to offer? Why is he concerned you're going to take the kidney and these two things, these you burn, these you eat. Why bother? See my point? If what you were saying was true, God would have told them, okay, what I want you to do, offer sacrifices. I'll leave it up to you to figure out what you want to offer me. And we're done. Why micromanage? Because they needed it. If they needed it, we need it. That's why. That's the reality of our nature. We're rebellious. And that's hard to contend with. Yes. Yes, and I think it's a very good point that you made, which is that it is important to follow the liturgy because if we don't, we start introducing different things to it and pretty soon it's no longer our liturgy. It is something completely foreign to us. That is a danger that is ever-present, and I absolutely agree with you on that. But You need to take it one step further and use this analogy of the man who goes and brings the wrong flowers to his beloved. He didn't do anything wrong, In bringing these particular flowers, in other words, he's not bringing her a bomb or chemical waste, right? But he did not listen. Yes, you, you could possibly argue that they're changing the sacrifice, but that's not the most important point. They could have offered another sacrifice. In other words, they could have brought another sacrifice, but which is set up for a different function. And I think the effect would have been the same. So even if they did the right thing at the wrong time, it is still the same thing. Yes, yeah, that is possible too. Although the reason why God was angry with Moses when he struck the, the rock twice has to do everything with the Eucharist. Because the first time Moses struck the rock, once. Like Christ was struck on the cross, once. Afterwards he was supposed to speak just as the priest speaks the words of consecration. And water flows. So, there is a much deeper meaning behind it. But yeah, the same idea. Moses struck the rock twice only. And he was forbidden from entering the Holy Land. Which in our my- my eyes would be, well, this is just a small thing. No, it's not. What you're saying to God is that I know better. What you're saying to God is that I am angry. And I'm allowed to be angry right now. What you're saying to God is, I love you, but my way. Right? It's a real significant offense against the Almighty. And this is why you've heard me so often be so concerned with the way we worship. This is why. And we will not solve our problems in society. We will not turn things around. We will not ever turn things around unless and until we worship in spirit and in truth. Until then, it's going to be the mess that we have right now. Yes? You know what? That point you're bringing is so deep. We're going to come back to it. But I respectfully disagree. You're making my point in a negative way. When you said, "Well, God doesn't always actually he does." That's the other really important lesson. No, no, he does in the action in the occasions of your day. He's telling you things. Right? Yes. Yes. All right. What well, he did he did, through this woman. That's what he said. Yeah. Just as this priest, my free, the free will decided to do something else. God is not saying, you are automatons. I say you do. I say jump, you jump. But God is saying, I am with you every second of your life, and your entire life is a conversation with me. Are you listening? So when that woman said, bring me roses, God is saying, bring me roses. Oh, yeah. Translation. When my wife asks me for something, God is asking me for this. In general, when, when I speak of see- seeking God's will in others, I'm always talking about them asking us to do something that is lis- licit, proper. Right? If a bishop or a pope comes and asks me to do something that is against the teaching of the Catholic Church, I will not obey period. Let's be very clear here. If my wife is asking me, not she's going to do that, but if she were to ask me to jump from a window and kill myself, obviously I am not going to obey. But she's not going to do that. Why? Because if you're in a, in a, in a Christian marriage, God's prevenient providence will be present to guide all things towards the good end. And we must believe that even when it's hard. We'll come, come back to that. Okay, so we've talked about Nareb and Abihu and her death and we started by saying how strange this was. And we ended, hopefully, by understanding why the punishment was what it was. Now, here's one question. What happens today? What happens today? And I talked about the ordained priests. But remember that from the, 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 the point of view of the royal priesthood, we are all prince kings, queens, and prophets, men and women. This is the gift of Christ for us. Therefore, from that angle, we are on equal standing with these two men who were not of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the clerical order today. They are of the priesthood of Aaron, which is more akin to who we are. We can offer sacrifice. Back to your point. You bring to the church a sacrifice you made. Well, the the, the Jews, no matter how good they were, they could not offer that sacrifice. Yeah? We unite our sacrifice. Even when I'm driving, I can unite my sacrifice with the sacrifice of the masses throughout the entire world. Right? Therefore, we're in the same boat as them. When I step into the church, that's one. When I step into the marital bed, that's two. Those are liturgies. Both of them. When I step into my house, right? What do we call the the Christian family? The hmm? Church. church. Domestic church. Yeah? If I bring strange fire into my home, if I neglect my duties as a husband and as a father and not just in terms of material wealth but also in terms of spiritual wealth that I'm imparting to my children yeah i'm in their shoes do you understand no difference we are in the same boat so here's the question have you seen anybody being struck by ha- by fire from heaven lately People do stuff. Nothing seems to happen. Right? Yes? Exactly. Paul is the one who says, uh, discern the body. Before you receive it, make sure you're in a state of grace. Make sure you are in a state of grace when you receive communion. Because communion is a blessing or a curse. Right? It's a blessing if you're in a state of grace. It's a curse if you're not. And some have died. So, The point I want to make to you is that because I cannot discern God's justice according to my own desire, it doesn't mean it is not happening. It is. That's number one. The second thing is that we ought not to desire God's justice. We ought to call for His mercy. We have to refrain our desire for... By the way, our desire for justice is a good thing. St. Ambrose says there is a good thing to rejoice about the punishment of the wicked. Rejoicing over the punishment meted for wicked is a good thing. It's part of God's justice, so it is a good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't have that, but we should exercise the greater good of calling upon God's mercy, so that nobody, nobody uh, goes to hell, even though we know the multitude do, right? And by the way, desiring anybody who goes to hell is actually a sin. Anybody, it doesn't matter who it is. Desiring, having a desire of somebody going to hell is a sin. So go to hell, beware of that. We should always, always, always desire God's mercy. Call upon His mercy. This is why the more you know about His justice, the more you call upon His mercy. Because you are better equipped to understand what you're dealing with. So, I, I hope I made the point and it's starting to really sink in The importance of the liturgy, the importance of your prayer life, the importance of how you live inside your home, how you behave. And you're you're always, always in conversation with God. Yeah? Okay. Let's move on because we have a couple more uh, points we need to cover. And we have a little time. So, um, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among those who are near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I will show myself holy. So holiness is the key here. God desires to be seen as holy. And our liturgy and our churches should reflect that. This is very important. Okay? And that the regulation, of a, the regulation of their office for the priesthood is to protect the purity of the sanctuary and make sure the sanctuary is sanctifying God. And today, when we have people who actually talk in church, It it makes it really hard for others to see God's holiness. It makes it really hard for others to understand the purity of the sanctuary and its importance. Hmm? So, when, as has happened in this case, we flout God's will, he exercises his punitive power, compelling all to recognize his authority. Now, Aaron held his peace. That's the other part that I wanted to talk to you about. Aaron Held his peace. These were two of his sons. Your sons died. Two of them at the same time. Watch his reaction now. He held his peace. He did not cry out or complain at his painful loss. And then the cousins were called to remove the body out... The brothers could not touch them, neither could Aaron. They could not touch the two dead. Why? They, just, they were just consecrated as priests. If they touched dead bodies, they become unclean. I just want you now to reflect on the tragedy for Aaron and the two brothers. They're supposed to serve in the temple, and God just killed two of their brothers. And they cannot even touch them. Moreover, Aaron, as the high priest, cannot mourn. He's in service. He cannot mourn. Now, here we we go again. Here's another distance between what we would consider to be just and acceptable and what happens in Scripture. Cannot mourn. We got to understand That our emotions, as important as they may be, do not trump God's glory. I may be feeling horrible. I may be feeling terrible. I may be angry. I may be enraged because something happened at work or something happened on the highway. It does not give me a reason to raise my voice when I speak with my wife. It does not give me a reason to not smile when I greet her. Even if I don't feel like smiling. It does not give me a reason to vent and complain and criticize. Aaron held His peace. His two sons have been killed. He can't mourn. He cannot touch them. He held his peace. What is that saying to us? We've got certain things upside down and they're not helping us. We have enthroned our emotions so essentially there was this swing in the pendulum where in the 19th century and the centuries that preceded that, because of the harshness of the life, people knew how to bottle down their emotions for the most part. You didn't have time for any of that. Right? And we went from there to a life of plenty and comfort. And so what did we do? The genies out of the box, and now our emotions are the king. And he is a stubborn, willful, rotten king for the most part. We satisfy and sanctify our emotions. They give us rights to complain, to criticize, to vent, to be angry. They give us rights. Our emotions are now the constitution. They give us the right to do all these things. Aaron held his peace. So I would like to read to you from a book that I go back to time and time again, and if I had time, I would love to do a moral study of scripture, but right now I don't have the time to do it, so this will have to suffice. This book is called The Spiritual Combat, and it is uh, And or Treatise on Peace of Soul by Don Lorenzo Scupoli. Scupoli, just Google Scupoli, S-C-U-P-O-L-I, Spiritual Combat. If you don't have that book, I recommend you get a copy of this. This is, um, uh, reading this book will give you um, the sense of uh, getting into a matching box against uh, the heavyweight champion. There is no um, feeling sorry here. right. But this is a book that will help you on your journey and help you see the areas where you need to work at. I'm going to just read a short chapter from this book, which I thought was interesting in relationship to this fact that Aaron was able to hold his peace. This is chapter 37. Concerning the necessity of seizing eagerly all opportunities of practicing virtue, since our progress must be constant. Using the same example, I'm reading uh, a little bit into the chapter, to illustrate the acquisition of the virtue of patience. Never avoid the persons, the business, not even the thoughts, which to you have been the sources of much impatience. Rather, accustom yourself to the person you find most disagreeable, And to the task you find most irksome, for there is no other way of acquiring habitual patience. If any employment, by its very nature, is its author or its contrariety to your inclinations, is the source of personal discomfort... Be sure not to give it up on any of these accounts. Show your courage. Not only in cheerfully accepting the situation. Not enough to just accept it. Mumbling and grumbling. Cheerfully. Because a grumbling person is like a cow being carried by another person. Have you ever tried to carry a cow? You fall under the weight, don't you? Well, that's how a mumbling, grumbling person is to others. They sink under the weight. Be sure not to give it up on any of these accounts. Show your courage, not only in cheerfully accepting the situation, but in persevering in it despite the vexation that arise and the satisfaction you would derive in quitting it. The same may be said of thoughts which are particularly irksome. No advantage is derived in being entirely freed from them, for the uneasiness they create will gradually inure you, meaning habituate you, to bear the most vexing problems. Be sure, therefore, that whoever teaches you a contrary method shows you indeed how to avoid the trouble you dread, but now how to attain the virtue you desire. And this is In summary, what this culture wants us to do. Be comfortable. Be comfortable. Do things that are comfortable for you. Yes, you be comfortable. But you will not be virtuous. An inexperienced soldier who wants seasoning must be very discreet and cautious, suiting offensive and defensive tactics to the particular dispositions of his strength, etc., So, this is a really good book. My point to you, my point to you is that when you are faced with a situation that is irksome, and in the case of Aaron, it's more than irksome. It's a tragedy. But let's just bring it down to our daily lives. Something irksome happens. Let me point to you the sequence of attack that you are going to be under when that happens. You go from being irksome to being Annoyed. Possibly being anxious. Why? Because now the devil is fanning this. So you're in the middle of the highway, and you're late. You're going to get home late. You've invited people over. So notice all good things. You've invited people over. You're going to be late. So you're irksome, then you're anxious. You start to think about how they're going to feel. You become anxious. Okay? Okay. After becoming anxious, you can be angry, depending on your personality, depending on your trait and tendency. It can lead to anger. Anxiety, anger, and simply feeling unhappy with a situation leads you naturally in your mind to seek comfort. Because this is how we grew up. We hurt ourselves, we seek comfort for our mother. We seek comfort. There are vicious areas where we're going to seek comfort in. Let me give you some of those. One is vanity. We go from that situation to a situation where we imagine ourselves doing something grand. Like maybe lifting this car and flying with it. Or imagining that we are going to fix the situation when we're there. We start thinking about us doing the right thing. That leads to vanity. Lust is another area of comfort. And it doesn't happen immediately because lust comes after a period of irksomeness and anger and anxiety that has lasted long. We can go for lust. Or, for many other people, the fridge. Hmm? Sweets, chocolate, ice cream, something. We call it comfort food. I'm not even saying gluttony because you might be hungry, but you're not eating just to not be hungry. You're eating because you want comfort. You want to counteract the feeling of that is in you, right? Notice how this whole sequence... Now, here's the worst part of it all. What we have failed to see is that irksome moment... That you found yourself in. Was prepared lovingly for you by God. Before the world began. It's a gift. It's a gift. Because through it. You. If you now are training yourself in the virtues. Would have done the following. First you would have recognized your weaknesses. And then. You would have recognized that your weaknesses added to the passion of our Lord. Therefore, you would have run to the cross in your mind, stood before Him, and said, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Or, like the good thief, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, watch what you have done right there an act of faith in Christ, a confession, which is good works, and an act of hope right there. Right there. You know how much dividend this pays in heaven for you for eternity? Once you see it from eternity, you're going to be so happy you had that moment. Yeah? So, first, you recognize your own weakness, you ran. Second, you run for comfort. But where? At the cross, and where else will we need comfort? When you were little, who would you run to? Your mom. You run tomorrow. You grab the rosary and you say to her, may this pain I'm experiencing right now be offered to you as roses with this rosary. Right? Look what you have done. See the beautiful gift that God gave you? And then the third thing you do is an act of complete abandonment to the will of God because you are objectively, definitely going to be late and your guests will be waiting for you. So then, what do you do? You remember Christ in the garden. The agony he had to go through. You realize that the apostles fell, ran away. And you ask yourself, shall I run away from this now? Like they did. Or will I stay with Our Lady? Do you see what you can do with this one irksome little moment? This, my friends, is the power of the church. This is how you change the world. This is how we change the world. Because in doing so, you have pleased God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Our Lady... You've got an angel. You have done an act of conquest against your own evil inclinations. You've shown faith, hope, charity. Far more than if God were to open the highway, push those cars aside, and let you drive at 120 miles an hour to get there on time. Which probably would be what I would ask for in the first place. Do you understand what I'm talking about? This is what Leviticus is talking about. This is why it was so important for those priests to do the right thing. And this is why we are in awe when we think of Aaron who held his peace. So tonight, if you are going to spend some time in prayer, I do suggest you meditate on Aaron holding his peace, with his two sons dead, and reflect on him as a prefigurement of our lady who lost her son on the cross and did more than just hold her peace. And then reflect on your own lives. What are you doing before the losses that are inevitable? All of us are going to lose. Yeah? We know that. We're here only temporarily. Therefore, whatever we want to hold on, we're going to lose it. Are you holding your peace? And there is no way for us to hold our peace if we're not working on those virtues. Not going to happen. It's not automatic. Yeah? Just, I can't grow a muscle by wishing. Okay, grow, grow, grow. Not going to happen, right? I need to put into practice. Well, it's the same thing. Yes. All right. So let's finish with the word of prayer, and then we can take some questions. Question: Victimhood. What do you mean by that? You're talking about uh, sacrificial souls. Yes. So there is one thing which is called. I mean, there are souls called sacrificial souls. I'll talk about a moment. Victim souls, but what I'm talking about here is not nowhere near that. All that I'm saying is that the Christian life calls on us to trust in God's providence, distrust ourselves, make use, make proper use of our faculties, and rely on prayer. Those are the four pillars for us to advance in a life of faith. And part of all of this is to be aware of God's presence. But if we only are going to see God in those events that are pleasing to us, we're going to miss the boat. And more often than not, when something unpleasant happens to us, God is out of the window. And we take it all upon ourselves, which is exactly what the devil wants. He wants us to be alone. Right? So that's what I'm really talking about here. Is just the exercise in virtue, growing to be a man and a woman of God. Now, vic- victim souls take that to the nth degree. Like one example I can give you of an amazing victim souls is um, St. Is Rebecca, or St. Rafa, as we say in Lebanese. She's a Lebanese saint. She's a saint of the Catholic Church. She is from Lebanon. And here's what this nun did. When she was in her 30s, she realized that she was never sick. All her sisters would fall sick, asthma and other things, because the weather was terrible where she was. She, she was never sick. And then she stood before God and told him, on the feast of the, I think the feast of the rosary, she told him, how come me, as your bride, how come you've abandoned me? How come you haven't visited me with sickness? Well... It started with her right eye. And she went blind. So her mother superior thought that she needed treatment. She was right. So she sent her to one doctor who said, we can't do anything. If we touch this eye, I'm afraid it's going to go to the other one. But she didn't accept that and sent her to another doctor who said, oh, we need to operate on you. Well, Sister Rebecca says, okay, you can operate, but on one condition. No anesthetics. Okay? Well... The good doctor, and maybe he was nervous, I don't know, plucked her eye out. The priest and the nun who were with her were screaming, you know what? Sister Rafa said, Father, did you pay the good doctor? Then she became completely blind, and that disease that she had propagated to her entire body. In the movie, there's one doctor who's examining her, who's looking at her, and he says to her, Sister uh, Rafa, Rafa means uh, tenderness, basically, in, in, in Arabic, in Aramaic, too. Where are you from? And the nun next to her says, Oh, well, she's from such and such village. No, 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 no. She knows what I'm talking about. Because the person in her condition right now would be screaming nonstop. She then... Suffered from a complete dislocation of all her bones to such a degree that the bone of her shoulder was in her neck, and her poor sisters who were taking care of her didn't even know how to turn her around. Okay? She had blood coming out of her nose three times a day, three times a week. Constant pain until she was in her. She was in her seventies, fifty? No, 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 no. You can check it out. She was not young when she died. Oh yes, she was old when she died. Yes, oh yes, at least in her sixties, at least thirty years, and yet cheerful. Read her life, Sister Rebecca. It's unbelievable what she had to, what she went through. Cheerful. Now that is a sacrificial soul. Worth reading her life. She's amazing. Amazing. The degree she took it to. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll just relate two more events. It's beautiful. one point she was falling asleep. She looked she was falling asleep. And her mother superior called her. My uh, sister Rafa. Sister Rafa. And she opened her eyes. She said, where were you? She said, I was in a big hall, open hall, there were beautiful fountains and roses all over, and so many beautiful people going through the door. And I was going with them. And her, her mother superior said, then what happened? You called me. So I came back. <laughs> <laughs> Obedience? Oh yes, absolutely. Yes. It, it is a totally gift from God. I mean, but So I'm not, we're not called to be her. But for goodness sake, if there's an itsy-bitsy little irksome thing, a boss that is difficult or something that is, can't we just smile? Just that. Right? That's, the, that's, that that's why we're all happy you have St. Teresa Little Child Jesus, right? That's why we're happy we have her, because it's just a little way. Little things, just little things. All you have to do, little things. So from 35 to 82, 32, 32 to 80, 50 years. What are we going to say when we show up to heaven? See my point? Okay. All right. Questions? Yes. Yes. So the question about venial and mortal sin does not apply to the Jews. Everything we talked about in the sacrificial system has nothing to do about sins committed personally, whether venial or mortal. Those could not be forgiven. Yeah. No. Willfully performed sin could be forgiven by the sacrificial system that God put in place. That was just for things that they've done out of ignorance or out unintentionally. That's it. There was no salvation until Christ came. Now, keep in mind that Christ's death on the cross covers future and past. Therefore, the just like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and St. Joseph and John the Baptist and all the just of Israel were justified by the cross of Christ. They had to wait in that limbo of the dead. And that's why we say he descended into the dead to proclaim the good news to them and open the gates of heaven for them by the power of his cross. But the sacrificial system of the Levitical sacrificial system had no power in it to save. And that was St. Paul's beef with those who wanted to go back to the temple, the letter to the Galatians, when he called them fools. Why do you want to go back to a law that could not save? That's his point.
0: Okay, so what about somebody who repented after, uh, you know, committing a, uh, not, a non-venial sin, you know, not, nothing having
1: to do with uh, See, when you say somebody repented, you have to be careful with these words because none of us can repent without the, 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 the grace of Christ. You understand? So even when they repent, it is through the action of the grace of Jesus Christ. Hence, they are really, they are really under the new dispensation. You understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. yeah. So there is no name by which... We can be saved other than Jesus Christ. Above, beneath, or on the earth. You understand? Mm-hmm. The point we're making is that the law and the sacred ritual, the entire ritual, did not have the power to save. It doesn't mean that the grace of Christ from the cross could not flow to those who were justified. And that's why St. Augustine said, the law was given so that grace, meaning Christ, we may seek. And grace was given so that the law, the Ten Commandments, we may keep. The whole point is, God gave them this Levitical system of sacrifices, and they should have said, well, okay, what's the point? Something is missing. Do you understand? Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, How do you see that there is no hope? Why do you say that? Oh, very good. The point you're making is, yes, if I sin today and this law doesn't give me salvation, what's the point? Bingo. The point, you go back to God and you say, what up with that? What are you doing here? You enter into conversation with him and then the salvation you seek, he will give you. See, that's the point. God says, jump. Everybody jumps. Puts themselves in automatic mode. Whatever God says, we do. No idea. Why did God give him that law? Because of the golden calf. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You're supposed to follow. Bingo. Why are you following? That's the question. Are you following it because it is the law of Moses? Or are you following so that by following it, you tell God, I love you. Give me what I need. You see, the spiritual nature of the law is what was lacking. That's what they did. This is the whole issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's right there. They look at him and say, we are following the law of Moses. Down to the letter. How come your apostles, the Sabbath, they're taking, cutting, and they're eating? Enough? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, you can follow the law and go to hell. You can go to Mass every Sunday. You can say the rosaries. You can go to confession. You can do all these things. And you can still go to hell. Because if you do them just because, right, you're checking the list, you've done nothing. You, you understand? Okay. Hold on, there's a question in the back. Yes. Oh, absolutely, I'm saying that. Not just the Jews. Yeah. To, all, to the whole of humanity. Yeah. How could it be, for instance, that uh, that, uh, that widow, Isaiah, went to a Syro Phoenician widow, a Syrian widow, right? He was sent to her, and she had only a little bit to offer him for food, and she did, and her, her, her son died. Now, these are pagans, they're unclean. How come Isaiah prayed for her son and he was raised from the dead? The grace of God. So, we are constrained by the sacraments, we are to follow. The church. God is constrained by nothing. But it doesn't mean he works against his church. He extends the graces of the church to all mankind. Therefore, there are Catholics who are not enrolled in the Catholic church. Right? Just as there are those who are enrolled in the Catholic church who are not Catholic. Make sense? Yeah. So, it extends backward and forward in time. Because God is just. And every man will be afforded all the graces necessary for him or her to attain to salvation. Yeah, okay, yes. That's that's really all there is. But you're doing it because you want to worship God in truth and in spirit. That's why you're doing it. You're setting aside your own ways. You're doing it God's way, right? That's why. Exactly. Yes. Hold on. You mean this man wa- was going to kill somebody mm-hmm. and before he killed that person, he asked for absolution? Yeah, 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 I understand. He was asking for absolution. Yes. He asked me if, it is, if he received absolution. Yeah, because, well, that bishop gave yeah, I understand. Yeah. You asked me if he received absolution. Yeah. No, he did not. I didn't so. Because in order to receive an absolution, the matter proper for that sacrament is your contrition. You see, I can go to confession every week and never really receive absolution because I'm never contrite. Contrition meaning I sincerely desire to turn away from the sin and turn to God. Not just turn away from the sin because it's making me uncomfortable or making me ashamed. Turn to God. If that's not what I'm bringing to confession, I'm bringing Nothing. So I have a ritual, but there is no substance to it. No, he's not. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Absolutely. It's a good example of David being contrite in the Old Testament. It is, again, by the power of Christ. Right? Again, by the power of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross is allowed, what? allowed David to be contrite. Yes? Well, there are two things here that we have to distinguish. There's something called habitual sin. Yes. And there are people who fall into habitual sin who are sincerely contrite. But God doesn't take the sin away from them. There is no direct relation between being contrite and the sin going away. Why? Because God is using that as an opportunity to deepen their humility, to deepen their love for Him, to deepen their desire for salvation, to deepen their loathing of their sin. There is a whole process of conversion that God is doing in them maintaining that sin which eventually he will take away but sometimes it can be a long time in fact god is being merciful to them because through that suffering because here they are at odd with themselves so for instance say somebody who is um, alcoholic or somebody who is addicted to porn or whatever it's an addiction and, uh, and they are not able to free to, to break away from it but yet they're making efforts they're falling again making efforts falling again God, through this whole process, can bring them to completely realize they have to depend on Him. Therefore, He broke their pride. In the process also, they're no more judgmental because they're thinking, if I'm like this, who am I to judge this other guy? They're being humbled. So much good can come out of it because God will use that to humble them and bring them to that point by which He's going to purify them from that sin. Yeah. The point is, even for somebody who fell into um, a habitual sin, are they enjoying it or are they detesting it? And if they could can, um, if they could get rid of it, would they right now? If that's their attitude, they're seeking God with all their hearts. But God will leave them in bondage for a time because he's working on a bunch of other things. you understand? Now that's very different from somebody who's going to confession... And, oh, well, you know, I stole 50 bucks last week. I'll do it again. I'll go to confession. No. You're not contrite. Therefore, the priest should hold your sin. He should not forgive you. Because there is no forgiveness. You understand? Okay. Yes. No, no, no. Valid. Absolution is given. The whole confession is not valid. There has not been a confession. For that purpose, though, he said, "Whoever sins are forgiven... Because they're contrite. Right, didn't say that. No, but that's implied. Because conversion, which is the whole message of the gospel, is turn away from sin. Uh, uh, that's, that, you know, why somebody bothers to go to confession? There could be a whole variety of reasons. Some of it because of they seek comfort. Some of it they want to talk to the priest. In other cases, they're going there because they're thinking they're doing the right thing. They're following the form. It doesn't, following the form does not necessarily imply I am being authentic in my living of the faith. So many people go to Mass every Sunday, but doesn't necessarily mean they are living the Mass the way they're supposed to. So it's not for us to judge, but understand that there is an absolutely, it's absolutely possible to do all the sacraments and do them only for the form. Yeah. All right? Your last question. Oh no, 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 hold on. I did not say habitual sin is imposed by God. I said habitual sin can be used by God when somebody falls through his own fault into that habitual sin, and now he's trying to get out of it, God doesn't necessarily answer that prayer immediately. But I am not saying that it was God's intent for this person to fall into sin. Okay. It's easy. Really easy. Answer this question. Somebody is fallen into habitual sin. If you had the means to get out of it right now and glorify God, would you do it? Are you detesting that sin? And do you hate the fact that you're in it? If the answer is yes, you're seeking God's will. The answer is, I'm fine. I'm comfortable. It's no big deal. Then you're not. Right? Now, the shades of gray. We can flip-flop between the two. I'll give you that. But if you're trending one way or the other, you know where you're going. Yes? God's action is never to be doubted. If you're going to confession and confessing that sin... To the same priest, over and over again, you're not giving up hope. You're trusting in God. God will surely answer your prayer. You know why? Very simple. The mere fact that you're going to confession is that indication. Because you would not go to confession unless God was carrying you there. Make sense? Okay, thank you.